Welcome to the City Church Cardiff podcast. We're an Elim Pentecostal church in the center of Cardiff dedicated to bringing hope in the name of Jesus. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you're inspired and impacted by this message. So we're in our sermon series called The Good Book, where we're looking at trusting the Bible in an age of confusion. Now, many of you will know that the Bible um, is the all-time best-selling book. It tops bestseller lists year after year after year. Uh, over 100 million copies are printed every single year. Now, you can get paper copies in all sorts of translations and presentations. You can buy a Bible in whatever cover and color and style that you'd like. And if you don't want to read it in paper form, then you can go onto a website or you can download an app and you can sign up to Bible reading plans that you can look at a whole book of the Bible or a theme in the Bible or even the, the whole Bible itself. And you can look at any period of time you want to be able to read the Bible in. Now, if you don't want to read the Bible, you can listen to the Bible. You can listen to the Bible in a variety of recordings and voices. Uh, You can listen in your kitchen, or you can listen when you're on the move. But do we think that the rates of biblical literacy match how accessible it is to read or listen to the Bible? Do we think that we've seen an increase in the number of people who are living a life that reflects the truth of the Bible? Do we think that um, even amongst our churches that we can be confident that people are engaging with the Bible? Now, I've talked to a lot of people who have got stuck when it comes to reading the Bible, whether it's stuck in forming regular Bible reading habits or stuck when they come across a particular passage or verse in the Bible. Or it might be stuck when somebody's challenged them. What does the Bible say about this? What does the Bible say about that? And the risk when we get stuck when it comes to reading the Bible is it can mean that we can sometimes give up. It can mean that we just sort of go, I'm not sure what the answer is. This is quite hard. I'm not going to carry on with this. But the Bible has the power to transform hearts and minds. The Bible offers truth and life and hope. Romans 15.4 says, For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. But here's the thing. We can only be shaped by the Bible if we actually engage with it. We can only be shaped by the Bible if we actually engage with it. And sometimes there are obstacles that we can put in the way. That means that uh, we're not making the most of reading the Bible or even we're hindering what God can do in and through us through the Bible. So to help us to tackle some of these obstacles, today I want to look at how not to read the Bible. How not to read the Bible. And our first don't when it comes to reading the Bible is this. Don't read the Bible seldomly. Why don't you turn to somebody next to you and tell them, don't read the Bible seldomly. You're offering them good advice. Comedian Bill Mayer once said, to most Christians, the Bible is like a software license. Nobody actually reads it. They just scroll to the bottom and click, I agree. Now, this is one of the accusations that some atheists make against Christians, that we don't actually know what we believe, we don't know why we believe it, we don't know the contents of the Bible. The core text of our faith is something that we just scroll through and just say we agree with without actually knowing the contents of it. 
The claim can be that when Christians are challenged on something difficult in the Bible, that we don't know what the answer is, and actually, half the time, we're surprised to find that these bits are even in the Bible. You see, most of us will have heard that it's important to read our Bibles regularly. Most of us will have heard that advice. Don't read the Bible seldomly. Make sure that you read the Bible regularly. But it doesn't always translate into practice, does it? It doesn't always translate into our day-to-day reality. The busyness of life and changes in life circumstances and coming across these difficult bits can mean that habits of regularly reading the Bible can kind of just slip away. I love water. I love being near the water. I love being at the beach. I love being by lakes and rivers. I like being on boats on the water. And I really like being in the water. I love swimming. And I like swimming in swimming pools, but it's extra special, I think, to swim in the sea. Now, I'm not one of these people who enjoys cold water swimming. I don't really like, you know, you get some of those folk who Boxing Day comes around and they do that weird thing where they go for a swim. I can't imagine many things worse than going in freezing cold water to swim. And I live in Wales, so as you can imagine, I don't really get many opportunities to swim in the sea. So I was very excited this summer when we went on holiday to Mallorca to think about the fact that I was going to swim in the sea. And I had these dreams of swimming out into the horizon, having this wonderful swim, and gradually swimming back and not breaking a sweat. And the first day we went to the beach, I went for a swim, and I found it much harder than I'd expected. The current was much stronger than I'd anticipated, but mainly I was just out of practice. You know, I hadn't swum in the sea for years, and so I was out of practice. My fitness was probably a lot lower than the last time that I swam in the sea, and it was much harder, and so I'd imagined this wonderful experience. But actually, I came back to the beach a bit worn out (laughs) and not having not broken a sweat at all. When we only read the Bible seldomly, when we do something like just dipping in and thinking that we can just go into the Bible once in a blue moon, We think that we can discover a revelation, that we'll open the Bible this once, and there'll be this incredible encounter with God. But actually, quite often, we'll end up disappointed. Because this one time that we think, if I can just get into the Bible, I'll have this incredible revelation, and that'll do me for the next few months, actually often doesn't turn out to be as we expected. It's kind of like a kind of magic eight ball approach. Do you know those um, toys, the magic eight ball, and you ask a question, you give it a shake, and you turn it over, and it says yes or no, or try again later, or something equally as ridiculous? Sometimes we approach the Bible like that. We kind of open it at a page and just hope there's an answer for whatever it is that we're facing. Maybe a big yes is going to be printed on one of the pages. But actually... As I said, the experience can often not live up to expectation when we only do it once in a blue moon, and so then we end up not repeating it, and we go back to these habits of not reading the Bible very often. But reading the Bible regularly is one of the best ways of growing our relationship with God. It's one of the best ways of us learning about God's character and becoming more and more like Jesus, growing in our Christ-likeness. It's one of the best ways of us understanding God's redemption plan, understanding who God is and what he's done and what he's going to do. We can find all this in the Bible. And you know, the Bible is one of the key ways that God speaks to us. And so when we keep our Bibles closed, it's like we're kind of keeping the communication lines closed. We're not allowing and enabling God to speak to us through his word. 
So we're not going to read the Bible seldomly, and our second don't in how we approach the Bible is don't read the Bible selectively. Turn to somebody else and give them that really good advice. Don't read the Bible selectively. You know, in a society in a time where our attention span is apparently reduced and we like quick fixes and we like quick answers and we like quick responses, sometimes we've lost our capacity to read chunks of scripture or chapters of scripture or even whole books of the Bible. And instead, we opt for this kind of approach where we just pick out a single verse here or there and we read it in isolation. Now, the problem with doing this too much is that we can pretty much get the Bible to say whatever we want. You can pretty much get the Bible to confirm whatever preconception you've come with, whatever idea that you've already come to the Bible with, whatever view you want confirmed, lift a verse completely out of context, in isolation, and you can get it to confirm whatever bias that you've brought. And so instead of having this approach of reading the Bible and allowing it to shape us, we come with a preconception or a bias, and we just try and find the right verse that confirms that for us. Now, there's two ways in which reading the Bible selectively shows itself. The first is only reading the bits that we like the sound of. Author Philip Yancey calls this a Bible McNugget approach. You know, it might taste nice on the bite, but it's not a healthy way to live, is it, if that's all you're ever eating? This is an approach where when we choose verses that would look good if we printed them on a mug or on an Instagram post, that kind of thing. It's the ones that sound nice, the ones that don't push us out of our comfort zone or challenge any of the ways that we might live. Now listen, I'm not saying don't read those verses, definitely not. I'm saying read all of the Bible. You know, in fact, the verse that I read from Romans earlier on, that's about the fact that scripture is meant to be an encouragement for us. You know, the Bible is meant to help us endure in difficult times, but when we only read the verses that we think sound the nicest, then we're at risk of reducing the Bible to a series of kind of positive statements. You know, a pep talk just to make us feel a little bit better on that day. Now, the other way of reading the Bible selectively is to lift verses out of context and use them in isolation to form a view. And so there are a number of verses that are used quite often to do this, but I want to give you one example to demonstrate what it's like when you lift a verse completely out of context. And so one of the verses that can often be used out of context is 1 Timothy 2.12 um, to demonstrate a particular view of the role of women. And so I want to read you this verse, but I'm going to read you a few of the verses around it to give us a little bit more context and then talk through it. So 1 Timothy 2, and I'm going to read from verse 11. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve... And Adam was not the one deceived, it was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. And so this is a verse that some people have used to restrict women from ministry or leadership or preaching. It's a kind of clobber verse that some people will pull out and say, well, we don't need to discuss this anymore because here's this one verse that gives us the answer as to whether women should be leading or teaching in mixed settings. So how do we make sense of this passage? How do we make sense of this verse? Is Paul contradicting himself? Paul's the author here. Is he contradicting the other things that he writes in a number of his other letters when he greets and commends a range of other women leaders like Phoebe or Priscilla or Junia or Tryphena or Tryphosa or Persis? I could go on. 
Or is he confused between this view and the view that he gave in Galatians 3.28, that there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, but in fact we're all one? Or was it that Paul was just a misogynist? Well, I believe in the inerrancy of scripture, and I don't think Paul was anti-women, quite the opposite, in fact. Um, 1 Timothy 2.12 is not a permanent restriction that all women for all time shouldn't preach or teach in mixed settings. If that was the case, Paul would be contradicting the very things that he says in his other letters when he commends and greets other women that were his co-workers. He calls them his co-workers, a number of other women leaders. Instead, Paul is addressing a particular problem in a particular context at a particular time. Now, the context here is the Ephesian church, which was struggling with false teaching, which seems to have been perpetuated by a group of uneducated women. Hence, Paul's statement that a woman should learn. Ephesus was renowned for goddess worship, specifically the cult of Artemis, goddess of fertility. And so this description that we've read about Adam and Eve and the fall is likely a correction to some false teaching that had changed the creation narrative to put women above men rather than equally made in the image of God. Now, the goddess worship culture meant that women were dominant. In fact, if a man wanted to become a priest in the cult, he could only do so if he renounced his masculinity and was castrated. And everybody winced a little bit. The word translated as authority here is the Greek word authentian, which doesn't appear anywhere else in the New Testament. Now, when Paul talks about exercising authority in the church in other letters, he uses a different Greek word. He uses exousia. So, authentian isn't a fair or right authority. That's the kind of translation of it. It means to control or to dominate. It's, a, it's an abuse of authority. And we know this from other Greek writings at the time. They use that word in relation to violence, in fact. And so Paul's warning isn't about a normal use of authority. It's about a, an abuse of authority. Now, what some people like to do with this passage is they like to take one verse literally and another one not. And so the verse about having authority over a man is taken literally, verse 12. But the verse about women being saved through childbirth, verse 14, isn't. I don't know many churches who, I don't know many churches who preach that women's salvation is through giving birth. Now, of course, the idea that a woman giving birth would be her salvation would be contradictory, again, to the rest of Scripture when we're taught that our salvation is in Christ alone and we can't add anything to our salvation. And so, again, to understand this verse, we have to understand the context that it's written in. Again, the Artemis cult, women would have um, prayed to the goddess of fertility, Artemis, to keep them safe in childbirth so they wouldn't die when they're giving birth. And so there was a fear around that if somebody renounced Artemis and made a commitment to Jesus, would they be safe still when they were giving birth? Would they still be all right when they gave birth to a baby? Now, lastly, about this passage, it's worth noting that Paul switches to the plural, from the plural women in verses 9 and 10 to the singular woman in verses 11 and 12, back to the plural women in verse 15. And so some theologians argue that this indicates the specific problem was actually with a single woman rather than multiple women. But whether it was one woman or whether it was multiple women in the church in Ephesus, this passage was addressing a particular problem in a particular time, in a particular context. It's not a universal and permanent restriction for all women when it comes to teaching and preaching in mixed settings. 
Now, I'll give you this example to demonstrate the danger of lifting a verse out of context, and actually what happens when we're able to look at it in context and understand why, when, and how it was written. And so if we're going to avoid falling into the trap of selectively reading particular verses, we've got to read the verses in context. And that means reading the verses before, reading the verses after, understanding the context of the chapter and the book of the Bible that this verse is found in, as well as understanding the Bible itself, understanding the narrative and the, the story of the Bible. And so it means that we need to look at things like genre and author and audience and geography, a kind of why, what, who and when when we're looking at particular Bible passages. And so rather than lifting a particular verse and using that as a lens to view other passages in the Bible, we need to get to know the Bible overall. We've got to get to grips with what the Bible says overall. And so then when we find passages or verses that we find a bit difficult, we can use the overall Bible to help us to understand those particular verses. So we're not going to read the Bible seldomly, we're not going to read the Bible selectively, and thirdly, we're not going to read the Bible selfishly. I once heard this quote, when you're 20, you care what everybody thinks. When you're 40, you stop caring what everybody thinks. When you're 60, you realize no one was ever thinking about you in the first place. Now, some of you might be nodding and others of you might be thinking, is that what she thinks of me? <laughs> Depending on your age. <laughs> But when it comes to the Bible, whether you're 20 or 40 or 60, it's really important for us to remember that the Bible is not primarily about me. The Bible is not primarily about ourselves. Now, let me explain what I mean by this. Through the Bible, we can learn about ourselves. We can hear from God for ourselves. And I believe that we can be transformed by our engagement and reading of the Bible. But it's because the Bible is about God, not us. The Bible is primarily about God. We learn about ourselves when we learn about God. When we learn about the creator, that's when we understand who we are. And so if we open the Bible expecting the words to be addressed to me, in my context, in my situation in 2021, we might become a little bit confused. Now, one of the best ways that I've heard this explained is the Bible is written for you, but not to you. The Bible is written for you, but not to you. Now, one of the first house shares that I lived in, I shared with three other women, and all of our names were on the council tax bill. But there was an error on this bill. And so the council tax bill would arrive, and it would be addressed to Miss X, Miss Y, Miss Z, and Lord Catherine. So the council had bestowed upon me the title of Lord quite enjoyed it for a little bit. I decided not to correct it until I found myself in a situation where I needed to demonstrate my address, my name and address, um, and realized it's probably going to look a bit silly if I present a bill that says Lord Catherine. So I wrote to the council to tell them the error and asked them to change it. Now, I thanked them for bestowing a title on me, but I actually asked them, given that you've given it the wrong gender, could I please have the title Lady? But in the absence of that, I'll settle for Miss. Sadly, the council did not have a sense of humour <laughs> and just wrote back to me, addressing me as miss and asking me to pay my bill. The council tax bill may not have been addressed to me, but let me tell you, the council were very clear that that bill was for me. Yeah. The Bible is written for us, but not to us. And when we think the Bible, the Bible is addressed directly to us, then this is when we start to remove context and we end up focusing inwards on ourselves instead of upwards on God. 
And so if we're going to make sure that we read the Bible, we don't read the Bible selfishly, we need to remember why it is that we're reading the Bible. You know, this isn't something that we just sort of tick off a to-do list. It's not a chore for us to endure in some way. It's not even something that we do as a kind of tick box exercise in the hope that maybe we'll get into God's good books. Maybe he'll like us a little bit better if I read my Bible a bit more regularly. It's about growing in our relationship with God. It's about growing in Christ-likeness. You know, when we forget about reading the Bible and just approach it as a kind of necessary chore, we forget that we're engaging with the God who made us, the God who knows us, the God who loves us, the God who is loving and just and kind and good, and that is why we're engaging with the Bible. You see, the Bible isn't just some sort of dry text for us to plod our way through. It's living and active and has the power to transform us into the likeness of Jesus. Do you know, I remember when I first started reading the Bible. I remember reading the Bible and opening it and thinking, this is awesome. This is in the Bible. This stuff is actually in the Bible. The miracles of Jesus, the early church, words of hope and transformation, words that prophesied, words that spoke of the future and of life, words that told me what God's plan of salvation was and how I can join in, how I can co-labor with God in seeing the world transformed. Words like Jesus spoke. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world. Or worlds like the angel spoke at the empty tomb. He's not here. He's risen, just as he said. The way that John's gospel ends, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. When the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. This is all in the Bible and so much more. And you know what? My prayer since I started reading the Bible was, I don't want to ever lose my wonder at this. May I never lose the wonder of reading the Bible. May I never forget why I'm reading the Bible, to engage in a relationship with God, this good book that is filled with truth and hope and life. And you know what? That is my prayer for you this morning, church. May you find the wonder of engaging with the Bible and may you never lose it. May you never lose the wonder of these words from Jesus, these words from God, these words of life, these words of hope, these words of transformation in the Bible that we've got access to. And so if we're going to avoid reading the Bible selfishly, we've got to remember that it's not just about us, it's about God. And it's written for us, but not to us. It's also useful to remember that the Bible isn't a textbook. It's not just there for us to refer to as if it's some sort of historical document, although of course it does contain information. It's not just there as a kind of self-help book to kind of prop us up a little bit, although of course it does contain inspiration and guidance. And it's not just there as a, a kind of list of instructions, a, a set of rules that we're just meant to rigidly follow, although of course it does contain direction and moral values. Psalm 119 verses 11 to 12 says, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Praise be to you, Lord. Teach me your decrees. Reading the Bible Getting God's word into our hearts help us, helps us to know him better and to follow him more closely. Now, 
I've got good news for you this morning. If you think one of the things that I've talked about applies to you, maybe you've been reading the Bible seldomly. Maybe you've been reading the Bible selectively, just kind of cherry-picking verses out. Or maybe you've been reading the Bible selfishly. You've not been seeing it as a way to grow in your relationship with God. Well, today is a new day. Today is a brand new day where you can commit to reading the Bible regularly, to engaging regularly. You can commit to not reading the Bible selectively. You might want to think about a plan of reading a particular book of the Bible. Or maybe you might want to start a kind of Bible in a year um, or looking at a particular theme within the Bible, looking at a, a devotional set that you can follow. And of course, remembering that when you're reading the Bible, you're engaging with the God who created you and the God who loves you. Do you know, I believe that when we overcome these kind of obstacles to engaging with the Bible and we disciple others to do the same, that's when we can see transformation happen as we become more and more like Jesus and we disciple other people to become more and more like him as well. I want us to pray this morning, but I want us to take the opportunity first to pray particularly if you're somebody who you've been hearing what I've been talking about and thinking, well, this Bible sounds great, but I don't even have a relationship with God at the moment. Um, at our services, we always like to give an opportunity for people to make a commitment to Jesus. This is an opportunity to pray a prayer, to say, yes, Jesus, I want to be able to follow you. I want to be able to give my life to you. I'm sorry for the things that I've done, but I want to follow you for the rest of my life. And so we're going to put a prayer up on the screen, and this is an opportunity for us to pray together. And so church, we're all going to pray this prayer, but this is particularly for you if you've not made a commitment before and you want to make a commitment to Jesus. So let's say together, Jesus, I acknowledge that I have done wrong things and that my sin has separated me from you. But I believe you died for my sins and rose from the dead. Today, I ask for your forgiveness and thank you for your gift of new life. I receive you as my Lord and Savior. I choose relationship with you and I choose to live for you. Please come into my heart and change my life, now and forevermore. Amen. We hope you are encouraged by today's message. To find out more, visit our website at citychurchcardiff.com or find us on social media.